0: One of the things I'm learning these days is that you and I live our lives based on a set of stories in our hearts and our heads. That we have a story about how family works. And when we think about our story in our heart and our head about how family works, uh, it it informs and it uh, directs the decisions we make. And we have a story about how work works. And so uh, when we have our story of work... We, um that informs how we work. And then we have a story of faith. And when we have this story of faith that's a certain story, that informs how we practice our faith. Let me give you some examples uh, just to get you on this page. Uh, for instance, if I grew up in a workaholic home, then I tend to, my story of work puts work at a very high priority in my life. And I tend to go in early and I tend to work late and I tend to make work the number one. Priority in my life. That's my story. That's what I live. That drives my decisions. Now, my wife and I walked with Jenny, who was a young single mom, whose grandparents were on welfare, her parents were on welfare, and she as a single mom were on welfare. That was her work story. She had never been in a home where anyone actually ever went to work. So the idea of getting up at 7 a.m., five days a week, and going to work, was not a part of her story at all. Her story was like you might go to work one day a week if you're feeling pretty good. And do you see the difference? And hopefully a bunch of us have more of a healthy story of work where it's not the number one priority, but it is a priority for us to be responsible in that. Do you see what I'm saying? And do you see how whatever that story was in you? Uh, we, have a, we have a story of family. I just came from the Lincoln Center uh, gathering, you know, and they had probably uh, 40 people there to celebrate a 90th birthday. So they had young families who got in their car um, and drove a lot this morning, um, 40 people celebrating this 90th birthday. Now that's a story of family. It's like somehow they have this story that when grandma and great grandma has a birthday, we all come. And so it drives the weekend. For all those families, they go, well, this is grandma's 90th birthday. We're going to direct our lives based on that story that we have. So I, I just want you to think about the stories that you have. And some of the stories we have in our heads are wrong. For instance, I do marriage counseling. And a couple will come in and I'll start talking to them about what they're doing and what it's about. And it's quite common these days for them to say something like this. We plan to be together as long as we're in love. We plan to be together as long as it's easy. We plan to be together as long as it's fun. Bonk, thanks for playing wrong story. Right? The story, God's story on marriage is as long as we both shall live. And what makes it work is our commitment, right? So there are wrong stories in our heads that get us to make decisions too. Young couple comes into my office. This is a couple of years ago. And uh, the husband is just beat red, just mad. And he's saying, Dave, this is not the woman I married. She has like totally changed. This is a different person. I don't even know this person. He's like yelling. Going, well, let's settle down. Let's talk. And what had happened is, three months ago, she had had a baby. And she had a baby story in her mind that she had never told her husband. And the baby story in her mind is when you start having kids, everything changes and you no longer party, you no longer go out on Friday and Saturday night, you simply stay home and be a mom and dad. Well, the problem is her husband never heard that story and her husband had a completely different story. It's like kids don't ruin your life. You know, it was his story. And so I'm just trying to point out places where we have these stories that impact us. Okay, last Sunday night, a lot of you don't. Last last story to get you on board with this part, because we are getting back to the scriptures in just a minute. So last Sunday night, I have this story about being a grandpa that I've told the church and I've told our friends. And my story of being a grandpa kind of goes to my grandpa's story, how he was um, a part of it, is I want my grandkids, when I'm gone, I want them to remember two things. Dave loved and served Jesus with his whole heart. He was all about Jesus and... He was all about fun. I mean, Grandpa would build tents. He would crawl around. He'd climb trees. As old as he was, he was still fun. He taught us how to ski. And that's what I want my grandparents to know. That's my, that my grandkids. That's what I want my story to be. So we've been walking with 16 people on Sunday nights at our house doing this small group. And the topic of this small group was, uh, how do you walk with adult children? And kind of my philosophy of walking with adult children is those of us who are now grandparents are assistant coaches to those who are now the head coaches who are the parents. And it's sometimes hard to move from being a head coach for a long time, being in charge, having things your way, to moving towards an assistant coach. Are you with me? So then last Sunday night, and these basically are some of the elders in our church, some of the grand, did I say grandparents, old people in our church, and they knock on my front door. And I go to answer the door, and they are standing there with eight of these. Now, I don't know if you recognize this, but this is actually a marshmallow shooter. So eight of the leaders of my church have arrived at my house, and when I open the door, I get eight marshmallows in my face. And like, it's amazing. It's like, these old people, pff, good job, are doing this. And it's like, um, it's like, what is going on here? Pff, I was hoping I could get you, Troy. <laughs> and so I turn around, and I'm retreating, because the things are pelting me. I'm retreating to the kitchen, and here come the other eight with eight more of these things. And then they p- proceed into my living room. And there are hundreds of marshmallows flying everywhere. Now, I'm the senior leader of this church. And my house is getting filled up with marshmallows by our leaders who are old. What is going on? When it's all done, they hand it to me and say, for you and your grandkids. Here's the, now my home is a little different. We actually do have a basketball hoop in my uh, living room, uh, so it is not. Yeah. Here's the deal: your story not only impacts you and how you decide; those around you want to encourage your story. Are you with me? Okay, that's why it's so important. It's so important that we understand what these stories are we're living out and what are true stories. And sometimes the stories we have are not true. Young woman, middle-aged woman comes into my office and says, Dave, I've lost my trust in God and I don't think I believe anymore. And I said, well, tell me about it. And she said, well, she didn't say these words, but what was saying is, here's my story. I had breast cancer. And I prayed that God would heal me. And I thought he promised to do it. And so I had the treatment. And now it's back. I thought I could trust God. And I said, show me where God promised that he would heal you. He promised to be with you. He promised to love you. He didn't promise specifically to heal you. And so your story was wrong. Your story was wrong. And so we can't hold our wrong story against our God. Okay, now, what in the world does this have to do with First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon? I knew you were thinking that. Um, what Paul is doing is he's writing to these men, and he's saying, let me inform and correct your story of faith. Let me help you get it better, because there are things you're understanding about God that need some clarification. We all have stories of faith. My story of faith started, uh, well, when my dad became a Christian. But then uh, later, I was in a camp, uh, ca- uh, camp, uh, church camp setting, and one night the counselor said, "You know, you can sum up all of faith." Now, this is fifty years ago or more. You can sum up all of faith in three words, and this was my story for a long time: sin salvation, service. I think we have a slide on that. Sin, salvation, service. And here it is 50 years later. And I can tell you those three words that he summed up faith. He said, we're broken and we need a rescuer. He said, Jesus came as a rescuer for your soul, for your life. And he's the answer. And he said, when we receive that, then we turn and give our whole life back to God and we serve him out of love. Pretty good outline that I remember 50 years later. I doubt any of you will remember my sermon three days from now. Uh, But isn't that powerful how God uses something like that? So then Billy Graham steps to peace with God. Let's put up the next slide. Here's how Billy puts it in his organization. God has a purpose. And the purpose, now again, remember what we're doing. We're saying this is to be your story. So Billy's saying this is the way to do a story. In fact, research says One of the things that affects you your whole life is what story do you understand at the point of becoming a Christian? There have been like lots of surveys. What impacts your faith in Jesus? The way you practice it. It's got a lot to do with how you came to know Jesus at that point of the story. So Billy Graham says, God's purpose is peace in life. Peace with God and a life to the full. The problem is our separation from God. God's bridge and many of you have drawn this on napkins, many of you have seen it in books and pamphlets. God's bridge is the cross. Our response is to receive Christ. And then God's assurance comes from His Word. Sometimes we grew up in the church, and the church is a key part of our faith. And then when we follow Christ later in life, it's automatic to be in church because the church is where we got our story of faith. Some people get their story of faith on a college campus with Campus Crusader, the Navigators, and they've never been in the church. And sometimes it's hard for them to get the story back to the church because they came to Christ in a different setting. And so um, the story of faith we have can be um, very important. Now, let me take you to Timothy. How does the Apostle Paul from jail right to Timothy and what does he say to Timothy he says a lot but I'm going to pick out just one Timothy's in a culture where young people don't step up and speak young people um, kind of are subservient submit to older people and the apostle Paul sees that and he needs Timothy to take a little different role and so he writes this verse first Timothy four twelve. This is Paul writing to Timothy to correct his story. He says this, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. What a story correction. And it might be a story correction some of the young people in this room need today. It's like churches for adults. Or churches for your... Uh, faith is when you're older. And know what... Paul is correcting the story. He says, you're never too young. You're never too young to be an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Most of our new members classes, there is some couple there who say they got there because their kids brought them to church. Their kids came to chaos or junior high. Their kids got excited about Jesus, and then their kids brought them to church. And so um, you're never too young. Now, what about uh, Philemon? Paul does the same thing. And uh, I want you to think about how Paul corrects Philemon's story. Uh, Here it is. Uh, uh, Philemon 1, 15 to 17. Remember what Ed said on the video, if you caught it, that Onesimus was a slave. slave. He robbed uh, Philemon. He ran away. And now Paul's... writing from a distance and says, here's the story. Perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, says Paul, but even dearer to you both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him back as you would welcome me. New story. Hey, Philemon, you got your story on Onesimus wrong. He's come to Christ now. He's no longer just a slave. Now he's a brother. And I want you to treat him just not as a runaway uh, thief of a slave. I want you to understand he came to Christ, and let's figure out how to live that better. And then let's go to Titus. The Apostle Paul uh, uh, is writing to Titus. And Titus is working on the island of Crete. And there are uh, 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 Cretans there, is what they're called. And uh, I think we have a slide on this, Titus 1. Even one of their own prophets has said about the Cretans, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in their faith. What what um, The Cretans were a especially rowdy group. And in, in, there's even a slang term now. They're acting like Cretans, which is like lazy, um, maybe you've heard it, lazy, uh, uh, evil, uh, kind of brutes, rowdies. And so then uh, Paul writes this. Titus two eleven to fifteen, and here's the correction of his story. Here's the clarifying of his story. He says, "For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men." Starts with Jesus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Jesus. Uh, I was with John Perkins. John Perkins is a black man. Uh, he uh, works out of uh, Mississippi. And he's leading an organization and that he founded many, many years ago called Christian Community Development Association. And it's the principles we use as we go to under-resourced areas. So I've been listening to John for several years. I was in Minneapolis with him a couple weeks ago. And he opened to Titus two eleven to 15 and said, this is the best place in all the Bible to find the gospel. And when John Perkins writes that and says that, I say, wow, I got to pay attention. And so I'd come at it with that. Why was Paul writing this? He was clarifying what the good news is. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us. What teaches us? The grace of God that brought salvation. Teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Okay. What teaches us? Why do we live godly lives instead of ungodly lives? Why? If I were just to push this back and say, let's, let's have a little interaction here. Why did you get up and come to church this morning? Why do you do what is good? Why do you want to join helping hands and cut down those trees and build those fences? Why? And the answer is here. It's a clarifying answer. It's because of the grace of God that brought salvation. It's God's gift. We do it because we get to, not because we ought to. That is such a key part of the gospel. We do it because we get to. God gave us life and breath and energy and resources, and we get to serve him. We don't do it out of duty. We do it out of joy. When somebody gives you an amazing gift, what do you want to do? You want to give back. And Jesus told us how to give back. Help those who are less able to help themselves. So helping hands, yes. Um, funding the ministries we do, yes. Not because we need to or we ought to, but because we get to. That's the story. We ought to have smiles on our face when we're coming to church because we get to, praise God. Not because we ought to. So uh, go on here. So we say no to ungodliness. Why? Because we get to and because of the gift. 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, that's Christ's coming back, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 14, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Here it is again, eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. Why? Because he redeemed us. I always share with uh, student ministry, like uh, Pepsi-Cola, you know, they create a can. And then we use it. And then they redeem it. They buy it back so they can be used again. That's what God did. He created us perfect. My story these days, are we are created in the image of God. Then we got broken. Then he buys us back. And when we understand he bought us back at great cost to himself. Then we're eager to do good. These, then, are the things you should teach, Titus. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Okay, one more thing about your story. This uh, this struck me two weeks ago. Doug Tinson was teaching, and uh, I don't think he got out here and taught the survey. Maybe he did. It's okay. I'm still learning. Thomas Thomas Merton did a survey in North America, and he asked Protestant Christians... This question, have you in your faith story had a mysterious supernatural encounter with God? I'll give you the question again. He asked, have you had a mysterious supernatural encounter with God as a person? Half of the Protestant Christians in North America, according to the stats, said, yes, we've had one of those. His second question, have you told anybody? Huge, huge majority had never told anybody talking about story of faith. He said in his survey, who would you tell if you were going to tell anybody? You know who was the top? My psychiatrist. Do you know who was in the middle? My bowling team, my hairdresser. Do you know who was dead last? My church. I heard that. I said, what in the world is going on? I have a supernatural, mysterious encounter with God, and I won't tell my church. I'll tell my bowling team. So I went home to lunch. My son's eating lunch. He goes, Dad, we ought to do that as a family. I said, what? What should we do as a family? He said, well, we have this whiteboard thing when the kids all come home for the weekend and the grandkids, we have a whiteboard over the fireplace and we put up any topic we're going to discuss. So he said, let's make it a whiteboard topic. I said, great. Why, do you have one of those? Supernatural, Mysterious Encounters with God? He said, yeah, I've never told anybody. I said, well, what is it? I don't have to wait for the weekend. He goes, well, it was in Grandpa's uh, room at the hospital when he died. And I said, well, what? He said, well, we were, you remember? We were there, you were there. He was saying to me, 20 of us standing around Grandpa's bed and we're singing In Christ Alone and my oldest son just got there and we're watching Grandpa's machine, and we're singing the last verse of Christ alone, and his machine goes from that to that. And the nurse comes in and said, he's gone. And my son Ben said, Dad, something happened to me in that room about God. And we've never talked about it. So my wife looks across the table and says, well, Dave, you've never told our kids about your supernatural encounter with God. I said, no, I don't talk about it because it's too weird. I'm not going to be weird. And anyway, and anyway, my faith isn't based on that supernatural encounter with God. My faith is based on this book. And uh, she said, well, I think you should tell. And so I will. And I told our staff the other day, and it's no big deal, really. Years back, I was trying to make a decision for God. And I was in a room, and it felt like the presence of God came there, and I got on my knees. And I always prayed with my hair down, and all of a sudden, my head came up. And it was like God was saying, Dave, look at me, I'm with you. He never answered my question. I didn't get any answer. All I got was, he was there. He was real. So... um, Uh, If we're going to change the culture of a church, you know, our big orchard church, we we believe we know how to change the culture, and it starts with the leaders. So on Monday at staff meeting, I went and I said, okay, mysterious supernatural encounters with God, let's talk about it. And it was amazing. We sit at seven tables, and they have huddles, and uh, they told stories, and it was like a holy moment. So then I emailed our board And said, okay, we have a board meeting tomorrow night. I said, okay, guys, here's the deal. If if you're going to change the culture of a church and make it okay to talk about these weird, mysterious, supernatural encounters with God, that I'm not even sure exactly what happened, if we're going to talk about that, then uh, if that's going to be a part of our story, then we need our board to do it. And so then, with permission, one of our board members uh, is not able to come. She'll be in Texas. So she wrote me this and said, Dave, use it wherever you want, so I'm using it. May I share my supernatural encounter, even though I will not be there. I would love to have you share it, B. I hope it is a source of encouragement to hurting people. Um, when I was uh, about three years old, for several years I was very ill, spending much of my time in the hospital, and I missed kindergarten and most of first grade. Most of the time, fevers ravaged my body and I was not aware of what was going on around me. However, in those times, I could feel my loving daddy just holding me tight and rocking me gently. Those memories are very vivid and clear, just like they occurred an hour ago. The memories have provided me with great love, respect, and comfort for my dad, carrying me through some very difficult times in life. Now fast forward, and I'm 47 years old. Stay with me. When we would go to visit my parents with our kids for weekends, the joke always was that my husband and the kids would pack up the van while Dad and I played a strategic game we loved. The Saturday after Thanksgiving weekend, 1997, the same occurred. Dad and I were playing our great game while my husband herded the kids and doing what was needed to be done. And while we were playing the game, my dad was sharing with me how badly he felt for our four-year-old grandniece who had leukemia. And I said to my dad, but dad, it'll be okay. I know Abby is feeling the love of her parents just like I did when you would hold me so tight in the hospital. Referring to when I was a child. I even told him about how great it felt to be cuddled tight, wrapped in a soft blanket, rocked in the rocking chair. My dad, a very quiet, loving man, looked at me and said, Honey, we weren't allowed to hold you ever because your fevers were too high. This elder writes, in that instant, those loving arms I felt as a child over several years, the comfort they brought me in later life, was my precious heavenly father, not my earthly father. I see this conversation with my earthly dad as a precious gift my heavenly father gave me. You see, that is the last earthly conversation I ever had with my dad. The next weekend, he as a perfectly healthy man suffered a major aneurysm and never regained consciousness. And he went to be with our heavenly daddy two days later. What a gift our conversation a few days earlier was. Because now I knew those precious arms of love I felt as a child were not temporary, but they still hold me today. What's your story of faith? If Paul were writing a letter to you about your story of faith with your name on it, what would it say? And uh, I hope and pray that um, we can change a little bit about how, even when we're uncertain about what God is doing in a life, that we can simply say, It could be God. It's probably God. I think it's God. I trust it's God. He's at work. He's at work when we're young with Timothy. He's at work when we have to operate outside the box like Philemon. And um, he's at work with what was written to Titus about uh, holding firm to the truth. Uh, He's even at work when we shoot marshmallows at each other. And it's okay. I'll pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you are a God who is amazing. A God who is alive and at work in this world and in our lives. You're there whether we see you or not. You're there whether we feel you or not. And uh, Father, we pray that we would be filled with your spirit, that we would be focused on your work that we would be open to your heart. And uh, we love you, and now we're going to continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.